Hi, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. Big E here. This is Law for Virginia Law Enforcement Officers. We're talking about cases, constitutional law, statutes, uh, Virginia Court of Appeals, Supreme Court rulings. What do you need to know as a law enforcement officer to strengthen and serve your community where you serve? Um, thanks, everybody, for your feedback. I saw a couple of you at live trainings in the last couple of weeks. Uh, we're doing live trainings again. That's pretty amazing and pretty cool. Uh, and so I got some great feedback there as well. So thanks to those of you who I saw out there and uh, hope to see the rest of you out there uh, soon. In the last few episodes, we've been talking about the special session in the General Assembly. Today's episode, we're going to talk about obstruction of justice. Um, just to give you an update on what's going on with the special session, it looks like the Senate has decided to, excuse me, the House has decided to take up the Senate's omnibus bill in the format that the Senate passed it. Um, I don't know if you remember, we talked about sort of there was a, a collision course going on where the House was insisting on its version and the Senate was insisting on its version of the police reform package. And it looks like uh, maybe the House is going to put the Senate's version to a full vote. Uh, and that big omnibus bill, maybe Locke's bill, has like about a dozen different uh, sections in it, but it includes that deadly force section, includes neck restraints and shooting at vehicles. It includes, um, uh, you know, prohibitions on purchasing military equipment. It includes the sections on no-knock warrants and so on. So if that passes and the governor signs it, we're definitely going to spend some time walking through it. But like I said, last episode, we talked about disorderly conduct. And what does disorderly conduct really mean? Uh, today, we're going to talk about obstruction of justice. And this is going to be a topic we're going to carry into the next episode. So uh, this is something we'll have to break up because there's so much material. Today, I'm going to talk about passive obstruction of justice. And then next week, I'm going to talk about active obstruction of justice. So actually using force or using threats or uh, indeed like escaping from a law enforcement officer. But today, I'm just going to talk about passive obstruction, which honestly is the more challenging or more uh, confusing part of the law of obstruction of justice in Virginia. And last time we focused on disorderly conduct and sort of what that code section is. Um, you notice that, you know, nothing, something can't be disorderly conduct if it is obstruction of justice, right? It can't be both things. So it's really important to understand, even if you're charging a disorderly case, what obstruction is. And obstruction of justice in Virginia falls under 18.2460, which itself has four sections, A, B, C, and D. So I'm going to talk about section A today, and then I'm going to talk about sections B, C, and D next time. Section A says that if any person without just cause knowingly obstructs one of the following people, a judge, a magistrate, a justice, a juror, an attorney for the Commonwealth, a witness, a law enforcement officer, or an animal control officer, in the performance of his duties as such, or if that person fails or refuses to, without just cause, to cease such obstruction when requested to do so by one of those people, the judge, the magistrate, the juror, the attorney for the commonwealth, the witness, the law enforcement officer, the animal control officer, that person is guilty of a class one misdemeanor. So <clears throat> notice, first of all, that obstruction of justice, you can obstruct a police officer, but you can also obstruct a judge. You can obstruct a magistrate. You can obstruct a justice of the peace, a juror. Uh, you can obstruct a Commonwealth attorney. You can obstruct a witness, so a civilian who's been subpoenaed as a witness. And there are cases where people, for example, have done things to prevent witnesses from testifying in court. That would be obstruction of justice. But the core of this offense here is that the person either uh, obstructs the officer in the performance of their duties or fails or refuses without just cause to cease that obstruction. 
And the most important rule to know is expressed in a case called Ruckman, which is in 1998, that obstruction of justice does not occur when a person fails to cooperate fully with an officer or when the person's conduct merely renders the officer's task more difficult or frustrates his investigation. So in Ruckman, the person wasn't admitting to the fact that they had been involved in this crash. They had caused this crash. They were intoxicated. Um, the officer's investigating, but he couldn't figure out who the driver was in this crash because Mr. Ruckman kept lying about who he was and what he was doing there, and he got charged with obstruction. The court said that wasn't obstruction because it simply rendered the officer's task more difficult. It frustrated his investigation, but the officer was still able to do his investigation. And sort of classically, and this has been the rule for a very long time, since Jones versus Commonwealth in 1925, uh, running away to escape an officer is not obstruction of justice. And Jones, again, this is a 1925 case, but it's about obstruction, says, to constitute an obstruction of an officer in the performance of his duty, it is not necessary that there be an, an actual or technical assault on the officer, but there must be acts clearly indicating an intention on the part of the accused to prevent the officer from performing his duty, as to obstruct ordinarily implies opposition or resistance by direct action. It means to obstruct the officer, not merely to oppose or impede the process with which the officer is armed. There is a broad distinction between avoidance and resistance, or avoidance on the one hand and resistance or opposition on the other. And again, this has been the rule since 1925. So what you end up with kind of is this two-part test. And the courts haven't said this, but I sort of have squeezed this out of the cases. Sort of a two-part test here for to decide whether or not somebody is guilty of obstruction under Section 8, passive obstruction of justice. Number one, whether the defendant's actions did, in fact, prevent a law enforcement officer from performing his duties for at least some measurable amount of time. Not ultimately to prevent the officer, but at least for some period of time did it prevent the officer. And second of all, did the officer act with an intent to obstruct the law enforcement officer? And obstruction, the code section says the obstruction must be without just cause. So that means then that there has to be just cause for, in some cases, for resisting an officer who's acting within the scope of their duty. And the just cause tends to come from the right to resist an unlawful arrest. Because in Virginia, a citizen does have the right to resist an unlawful arrest with reasonable force. The force that the citizen can use uh, must the citizen may match the level of force used by the law enforcement officer with a reasonably equivalent level in response. And again, this has been the law in the Commonwealth for decades. Um, but in Virginia, citizens have no right to resist to use force to resist an unlawful detention, right? So if you're being arrested with probable cause, and that's or excuse me, you're arrested but you don't have probable cause. Uh, the requirement is probable cause for that, and let's say the officer doesn't have probable cause, the person would have a right to resist that uh, if it was an unlawful arrest. But if the officer's already detained that person, there is no right to resist a person, resist an unlawful detention, because the detention is only brief, right? Detention is supposed to be limited in time. And so therefore, the courts have not given citizens the right to resist that with force. So most of your obstruction cases tend to uh, not to deal with the just cause issue because most of them are dealing with the case at the investigative detention stage and not the arrest stage. So again, as I indicated, 
uh, Jones versus Commonwealth, this 1925 case, says that running away from the police is not obstruction. So that's pretty simple, right? And this is probably the most commonly mischarged version of obstruction. I used to see this a lot, you know, when I started 20 years ago. Um, I think we've gotten out of this habit. But back in the day, um, we would see officers charging people running away from the police. And the court in Jones said the fact that an accused sought to escape the officer by merely running away was not an obstruction as the law contemplates. While it is the duty of every citizen to submit to a lawful arrest, flight is not such an offense as will make a person amenable to the charge of resisting or obstructing an officer who is attempting to make an arrest, as there is a broad distinction between avoidance and resistance or obstruction. And as I indicated also, lying to the police is not obstruction under Section A. Now, we're going to get to Section D in a couple other episodes, uh, which is false statement to a law enforcement officer. That's a different kind of obstruction. But under Section A, the passive resistance, uh, Ruckman, as I said, was a case where the person lied to the trooper, and the court said, in this case, no proof was offered that Ruckman opposed or resisted the, trooper, the trooper's investigation of the crash, or his attempt to file his report with the DMV. The trooper was able to fully investigate the crash. Um, he questioned witnesses. He gathered facts. The fact that he stated he couldn't remember who was driving it didn't oppose or impede the trooper from performing the investigation. Now, notice, of course, you could have charged him with hit and run or something else, maybe if he was lying to the officer, but that's a different issue. Um, so again, think about you know Roberts versus Commonwealth. So in Roberts versus Commonwealth, he, this is a guy who's driving as an habitual offender. For those of you who remember that crime, um, when the officer stopped the vehicle, he gets out of the car, he walks away. The officer says, hey, you can't walk away, stay here. He asks the guy for his license. The guy runs away. He says, stop, stop, stop. The guy trips. He falls. The officer has to um, hit him with a taser to restrain him. The guy's struggling. He's refusing to put his hands behind his back. And the trial court convicted him of obstruction, but the Court of Appeals reversed in 2011, ruling that simply by running, resisting, and refusing to put his hands behind his back, the defendant did not sufficiently obstruct justice to be found guilty. Um, Love versus Commonwealth, a 2010 case, the same situation here. Uh, the defendant uh, fled from the police, ran from his car on foot. Officer pursued, said, stop, you're under arrest, you're under arrest, he doesn't stop. And uh, they, again, here in this case, he does nothing more than run from the police. And so the court says that's, that's not obstruction of justice. So again, notice, um, if the person's running away and the officer's saying you're under arrest, well, maybe it's the flight from arrest code section. We're going to deal with that code section next time in the next episode. So today we're just talking about obstruction. Um, here, however... In Brown versus Commonwealth, we have a little bit of a twist on the facts. So again, guy stopped for driving suspended, tries to get away from the officer, runs away. But here, as he's getting away from the officer, he's being arrested for driving on suspended. The officer grabs his arm. The defendant breaks the, breaks the officer's grasp, breaks free, and runs away. And in Brown, and again, this is a 2010 case, so same year as Love versus Commonwealth, uh, the court says... By pulling his arm free, the defendant prevented the officer from performing his duty through resistance by direct action and forcible conduct. And so here, the court finds that that is obstruction. So notice there's something else, right? And Henry versus Commonwealth is another good example of this. This is a 1995 case where officers arrive at the defendant's home to arrest him. They see him. He's running out of the back door, runs into the woods. They pursue him. They find him sitting by a creek. Um, the officer says, don't move. You're under arrest. 
The officer then uh, approaches the defendant, grabs him by the arm. At that point, the defendant strikes the officer, shouts at him, and runs away. And, and the police, police then have to struggle to take him into arrest. And so at that point, in Henry, the court says, when he strikes the officer, shouts at the officer, and runs away, the defendant obstructs justice. So what you have, certainly in these cases, is some element of force being used. But that still doesn't answer what our more basic question is, is and, and what I think is more, more common we see now, is the sort of passive resistance, right? Okay, so clearly if somebody actively uses some kind of force, well, then they're kind of delving even into the section B obstruction anyway, which we're going to talk about next episode, which is where you actually use force. Um, but what about passive resistance, right? Uh, what if you've got somebody who's just not, he's not doing what they want, you're not doing what you want them to do, is that ever obstruction? So let's look at Thorne versus Commonwealth. In Thorne, the officer stops Ms. Thorne for driving a vehicle with heavily tented windows. Um, she opens her window about three to four inches to provide her identifying information. But the officer says, ma'am, I need you to lower the window further so I can test the tent and also so I can see into the vehicle for safety reasons. She refuses. Um, the officer testifies at trial. He believes that there are other people in the vehicle, but he couldn't see because of the tinting. So here already, you're, you should ask yourself the question, is she simply rendering the officer's task more difficult um, or frustrating his investigation? Or is she evincing an intention to prevent the officer from performing his duty by opposition or resistance by direct action, right? And that's the test that Jones sets up in 1925. So what do you think about in this case, right? The officer orders her out of the car. She refuses to get out of the car. 10 minutes goes by, and finally another officer shows up, and the defendant finally complies. She lowers the window. She says her refusal to comply is not opposition or resistance by direct action, right? She says her argument is, under Jones, I'm not obstructing. But here, the court disagreed with her and found that the conviction was proper. So uh, this, the court says here, again, the actions, again, actions that merely make an officer's, difficult, officer's duty more difficult are not obstruction. But obstruction can include passive behavior. And here where the officer seeks to make the defendant act directly, and the, by, here by lowering the window, and the defendant refuses or fails to act as required, if the obstructive behavior clearly indicates an intention on the part of the defendant to prevent the officer from performing his duty, the evidence proves the offense. Again, she, in this case, and the evidence was clear, the, defendant, the officer couldn't complete his duty because for 10 minutes he has to stand there by the side of the road. He has to summon backup. Backup has to arrive and help him out. So notice the articulation about how much more difficult and how the officer was not able to complete his, his tasks because of her actions. And so that's Thorne, and that's a 2016 case. That's very recent. Um, another good case to look at here on this issue is Miles versus Commonwealth, which is a 2015 case, so just a year before. Um, police arrest the defendant's brother for a firearms offense related to a shooting. They go up. They should go to the probation office to seize his vehicle as part of the shooting investigation. Uh, when they get there, they see the defendant gets out of that vehicle that they're just about to uh, seize for purposes of the shooting investigation, and he gets into a smaller vehicle nearby. So the detective walks over and says, "Hey, you know, what are you? Do what were you doing in that vehicle?" Um, and the detective says, you know, get out of the vehicle. I need to look at this vehicle as well because we're going to have to seize now both vehicles to in course of this shooting investigation. He refuses to get out of the car. He locks the doors and he uh, uh, stays inside the car. The detective, detective then reaches into the window to unlock the door, but the defendant closes the window on the detective's arm. Um, ultimately, the detective was still able to open the door, but then the defendant refuses to get out of the car, so he has to pull her from the vehicle and arrest her. 
So notice here again, is the person simply not complying uh, with an order, like is the defendant simply running away, or is the defendant actually standing in the way of the officer completing the officer's tasks? Now, she at trial says that she, the reason that she did what she did was because he, the detective didn't explain to her why she had to get out of the car, and she thought it was unfair that she had to get out of the car. But here again, under the facts, the court found that the defendant's conduct was direct action calculated to prevent and obstruct the, the detective's performance of his duty. So notice again, you have this interference, right? It's not simply that the person is trying not to get arrested, but they're actually interfering with the officer's tasks, and it's making the officer have to do things the officer wouldn't otherwise do. So look at Molinet versus Commonwealth. Officers respond to a call for a fight. There's three women on the scene. The officer is speaking to one of the women to find out what the call is about. Um, there's a sergeant standing nearby just to kind of security, making sure that people don't start fighting again or that, you know, that everybody's okay. Um, the defendant, who doesn't know any of these three people, he just sort of shows up at the scene, right? So this is sort of your instigator, and you'll see this a lot nowadays, walks up from the street and starts to speak to the women himself. And he says, you know, don't talk to the police, blah, blah, blah. The defendant says, excuse me, the officer here says, you know, step back, sir. He refuses. Again, repeatedly, he says, sir, I need you to step back. I need you to step back. Please go stand by the curb. At that point, he starts stepping towards the officer. He's shouting profanities at the officer, and he starts uh, sort of swinging his arms towards the officer. Again, the officer tries talking to the defendant, but the defendant simply shouts profanities back. This happens repeatedly. Um, and at trial, the defendant says he didn't know what was going on. He simply wanted to make sure that the women weren't being arrested by the police. So think again here. I mean, this is something that you're going to see all the time that you probably have seen repeatedly. So what did the officers explain was going on? So the officers said, you know, look, we're trying to basically make the scene safe. We're responding to a call for a, a fight or a disturbance. We've got three people on the scene. We're trying to talk to them, find out what's going on. And we're trying to make sure that the fight doesn't restart and that, you know, the scene is secure. So the officer who was trying to interview one of these women instead had to divert his attention to this guy and make sure the perimeter was safe. He couldn't continue to con conduct his investigation because, uh, his, because of the defendant's disruptive and threatening behavior. And so therefore, the officer wasn't able to fulfill his duty. Nor was the sergeant, right? Because the sergeant, again, his job is supposed to make sure that the perimeter is safe. But again, he's having to deal with this guy and get this guy off the scene. So now the investigation can't continue. And the court agreed that the defendant's intention was to prevent the officer from fulfilling his duty. So the court found that obstruction was um, uh, uh, an appropriate conviction. So notice the articulation, right? The articulation here is, is pretty uh, clear by the officers and, um, about why they couldn't complete their job. Now think about Tabron, though. In Tabron, the defendant confronts police officers who detain some men on the street. She's yelling at them, don't, you don't need to talk to the police. You can leave. Don't talk to the police. The officer has to leave these men. He's dealing with these men and go get her to leave the scene. She gets angry um, at the, and she continues to um, argue with the officer. She gets arrested for obstruction. So to you, it might sound like, well, it's a very similar case. Molinet and Tabron are very similar. But in Tabron, the court says, well, uh, there's no articulation here that the officers couldn't complete their task. The officer had to leave the people who were being arrested to come over and deal with this woman but there's no testimony, there was no testimony at trial that diverting the attention of that officer hampered the efforts of the other officers. She was being, you know, she was yelling, she was screaming, but she didn't prevent the officers from doing their job. And so Tabron, that conviction is reversed, and that's a 2010 case. 
So, you know, the articulation is very different. It's just a little bit different, but one case is a conviction and one case gets reversed. Um, so now put them together and you look at Fripp Hayes. So now you've got kind of that lesson, so I'm going to give you Fripp Hayes. So in Fripp Hayes, an officer detains the defendant's son because he matches the description of a larceny suspect. He's got no identification, so the officer's trying to figure out who he is. So he says, well, I'm going to take a picture of this kid so I can um, go back and identify him. As soon as he's trying to take a picture of him, the defendant shows up. He says, why are you taking a picture of my son? He's explained, the officer explains, I'm trying to, t I need to take a picture of him because I'm investigating a larceny case and I need to identify him. Um, she refuses to prevent identification. She refuses to identify who her son is. She refuses to allow the officer to photograph her son. And instead she tries to grab her son, put him in the car and drive away. The officer says, ma'am, you can't leave, don't leave. She tries to drive away anyway. At one point she drives over the officer's foot. Um, finally, the officers are able to stop the vehicle and get a picture of her son. So in that case, again, would you say that that is simply, um, uh, you know, somebody who is making, who is not um, complying with the officer, or is she directly obstructing the officer? Is she, make, is she simply making the officer's task more difficult, or is she inventing an intention to stop the, the, uh, stop the officer from accomplishing his task? And I think the answer is pretty obvious here. The court found, again, because the officer had reasonable suspicion to lawfully detain her son, um, an officer who suspects criminal activity has the full authority to question the, the suspect about his identity, and therefore the defendant unlawfully interfered with the officer's attempt to photograph her son and uh, affirm the conviction. Um, so like I said, we're going to talk about active obstruction in the next episode, but you're going to see in the next few cases that you know passive resistance under under uh, under section A, and I like to call section A obstruction and section B impeding. The whole code section is called obstruction of justice, uh, and section A talks about obstructing, whereas B talks about using force or threats of force. So I like to call that impeding, just so we can make a distinction between obstruction and impeding. And courts don't always make that instruction, uh, uh, make that distinction. Magistrates don't often make that distinction. Uh, lawyers don't often make that distinction. But I think it's helpful if you're trying to figure out the difference between A and B. Today's episode is about A to call A obstruction and B impeding. But the line between obstruction and impeding can sometimes not be clear. So like in Epps versus Commonwealth, this is a 2016 case where the defendant was masturbating in public in view of his neighbors. They call the police, the police respond. They see the defendant, and as soon as the defendant sees the officers, he takes off running. They chase, the, they chase Mr. Epps, and instead of just running, and remember Jones says just running away is not obstruction of justice, so he would have been fine. I mean, eventually he would have been caught, probably, I don't know. But he, during the chase, turns on the officers, squares up his body to the officer, and takes a fighting stance. The officer pulls out a taser and says, you know, man, get on the ground, get on the ground. And finally, the defendant relents, and he does go to the ground. So there you don't have a very long period of time where the defendant is engaged in this activity. But he does use some kind of, um, you know, force or threat of force. But they charge him under subsection A. They charge him with simply obstruction. Uh, and so the question is, is that obstruction? And the court says, yeah, it's obstruction under section A. Because to apprehend the defendant, the officer had to threaten him with the use of force, right? And so the officer there, again, can't just do his regular job, which is to go over and put him in handcuffs. The officer has to draw his taser. He has to issue threats. And so in that case, because of what the defendant did, because he took up that fighting stance, squared off his body, uh, the court found that was Section A obstruction. 
Now, again, when we get to impeding, question whether or not, you know, would that also be impeding? Um, we'll get to that when we talk about the next episode. So Warren versus Commonwealth is another good example of sort of this line. And Warren's a 2018 case where officers respond to a call for a person with a weapon and encounter the defendant's girlfriend. Uh, she runs to the officers from the bushes. She's covered in scratches. She's crying. She says the, the defendant was trying to kill her. Um, the officers at that point then, while they're talking to her, see the defendant, and he takes off running as soon as he sees the officers. As he runs away, he reaches into his waistband and he says the officers, to the, tells the officers, man, you guys are lucky. Um, he doesn't explain why they're lucky, uh, but he reaches into his waistband. The officers are telling him, stop, stop. He keeps running. At one point, he runs directly at one of the police officers, um, but then continues to run away. The officer disobeys officers, the officer's commands. He refuses to stop. He refuses to get on the ground. He eventually barricades himself in an apartment building. Um, so the Commonwealth charges the defendant, ultimately when they arrest him, with several different offenses. When they charge him with obstruction of justice, again, they charge him with the passive obstruction code section, the section A. They don't charge him with um, obstruction with force, which is B, the impeding code section. Now, when we get to the impeding code section next episode, you're going to see that, you know, it probably would have made a lot more sense just to charge him with the, the, um, the, the obstruction with, with force, the section B, the impede, what I call impeding. Because if they charge him with impeding, it was pretty clear that he was using force or threats of force to uh, attempt to stop the officers from doing their job. But in this case, because whatever, the magistrate typed section A and the Commonwealth wrote in the indictment section A, no one ever noticed that they were charging him with the passive obstruction code section. Um, which again, let's talk about the language of the code section. It says, with, if any person without just cause knowingly obstructs a justice magistrate or attorney for the Commonwealth witness or law enforcement officer or animal control officer uh, in the performance of his duties, or if the person fails or refuses without just cause to cease such obstruction when requested to do so, they're guilty of a class one misdemeanor, right? So it's a pretty simple code section. And so the question here is, um, is this sufficient to demonstrate obstruction under section A? And in this case, the court found it, it did. Uh, his actions demonstrated he understood or reasonably should have understood that the officer's duties included apprehending him, arresting him, and demonstrated his intention to prevent the officers from performing their duty based on his refusal to comply with the officer's legitimate orders. Um, and so, uh, again, another good example of this is going to be um, Bennett versus Commonwealth, 2010, where we have this line between using force and not using force. In Bennett, uh, Bennett's a passenger in a vehicle, stopped for a traffic violation. She starts arguing with the officer while he's explaining the summons to the driver. She starts approaching the officer aggressively. Um, he reaches, puts out his hand and says, ma'am, would you please stand away? I'm just trying to, do, trying to finish this summons and get on with my life. Um, she smacks the officer's hand away. At that point, okay, now she's being arrested, um, and and she fights with the officer. At trial, she actually argues that she had the right to resist an unlawful arrest. But again, the court says, well, at this point, the officer's just trying to detain you because you're preventing him from doing from completing this traffic uh, violation, and there's no right to resist an, an officer's unlawful detention, even if it were unlawful, which the court doesn't say it's unlawful, but the court just says there's no right here. Even if there would never be a right to resist the officer in this situation, and instead, you assaulted the officer, smacked the officer's hand without justification, uh, and therefore you were guilty of obstruction. And, I'm, I'm, you know, putting aside whether you're also guilty of assault on a law enforcement officer, which I think you would be as well. Um, 
And as I mentioned before, obstruction of justice can include obstructing a witness, a juror, a commonwealth attorney, uh, a justice of the peace, all those different magistrate. So obstruction doesn't just cover the police. Uh, and we're going to talk about situations where people issue threats, for example, against witnesses and how that can be obstruction of justice uh, in the next episode. But, um, you know, in Lee versus Commonwealth, uh, Lee versus Commonwealth is an interesting example of obstruction applied in a courtroom setting. And so Lee shows up to court one day uh, and, uh, and appears at a preliminary hearing uh, to represent a defendant. Notably, however, Mr. Lee is not a lawyer. <laughs> Mr. Lee shows up and says, well, I'm, I'm, the, I'm the defendant's power of attorney. And so I'm going to represent the defendant. I'm going to represent this person in a preliminary hearing as her power of attorney. And the judge at that point says, "All right, well, <laughs> you know, you, you're not doing that. Uh, you need to step away and go back and sit in the gallery." And, and, and Mr. Lee says, "I'm sorry. I keep saying Lee. It's Lux. I, it's not Lee. It's Lux. Lux versus Commonwealth." And Mr. Lux says, "No, no, no, no. I'm going to be her power of attorney. I'm going to stay here. I'm going to represent her." At that point, they order the judge orders the deputies. Uh, get him away from counsel table, and Mr. Lux continues to refuse. He says, no, I'm going to stay here. The deputies forcibly remove the defendant, and they arrest him for obstruction of justice. Now, again, you could think, well, maybe it's contempt of court or whatever, but here they charge him with obstruction of justice, and the Court of Appeals uh, affirms the conviction. This is a 2013 case. Delaying or disrupting a court hearing is obstruction of justice. Uh, behavior that is disruptive, rebellious, insubordinate, willfully disobedient, or openly disrespectful violates the statute. Now, again, behavior that's disruptive, rebellious, insubordinate, willfully disobedient, or openly dis dis disrespectful would also potentially be contempt of court. And if you're a courtroom deputy uh, or working security in a courtroom or just sitting in a courtroom, um, you often see judges will use contempt of court to address behavior that's disruptive, rebellious, insubordinate, willfully disobedient, or openly disrespectful. Um, and that's a common tool. Contempt of court in front of an office, in front of a judge, uh, judges typically will charge somebody with contempt in that situation and find them guilty of summary contempt. But summary contempt of court has a very limited uh, punishment. You know, generally speaking, you're talking about 10 days, up to 10 days in jail for summary contempt. And uh, you don't have a right to appeal it, but the court's power to issue contempt and uh, send someone to jail or, or, or convict somebody. Uh, and contempt isn't really a criminal offense. It's an offense against the system. So if you were looking to charge somebody with a, a criminal offense that was a class that was a class one misdemeanor that carried a you know a substantial punishment uh, that would actually go on someone's record and be clearly a class one misdemeanor, uh, obstruction of justice is another option, right? Because again, if you willfully obstruct a judge uh, in that situation, you, then then you would if you prevent the preliminary hearing from going forward, which again this person is doing, they're preventing the hearings from taking place. Uh, it would be obstruction of justice. Now, again, if you're simply being contemptuous before a judge, if you're simply being disruptive, but it doesn't prevent the court proceedings from actually going forward as planned, if you're openly disrespectful, but it doesn't prevent court from continuing, um, then you would just be guilty of contempt. You wouldn't be guilty of obstruction of justice. If you're, if you're simply disobedient, but it doesn't prevent court from happening, you'd be guilty of contempt, but not obstruction. But if it actually does stop court from happening, uh, then obstruction of justice is a good tool. So um, good 
I think, review of sort of what a simple obstruction is under code section A of 18.2460. Like I said, in the next episode, we'll talk about section B and section C and section D, and we'll talk about escape. Um, but that is for another day. For today, uh, that's all from me. That's all from Big E. I hope you guys like the podcast. If you do like the podcast, tell your friends. If you don't like the podcast, don't tell your friends. Um, please share. Uh, we are on Stitcher. We're on iTunes. We're on SoundCloud. Uh, if you want to, if you want us to be on another network, or if you think we should be on a different podcast app, let me know, and I'm happy to try to get us on that uh, app as well. So, to all my listeners out there, stay safe, and don't get captured. <laughs>